Next week on Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, something truly important is going to happen. People around the world are holding their breath, and perhaps the biggest turnout in American history will occur because there's a presidential election. It's also the day my new book comes out. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about books and why they still matter. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, Ramon, it's Seth. Hey, Seth, this is Ramon. Good to be here with you. Thanks for having me. My friend Ramon Ray is launching a new workshop on the Akimbo platform. It's really special. It's really important. What's it about, Ramon? Yeah, this is small business essentials. Not only do you have the videos and the content, the modules, but you're learning with others. And for me, that is most special because many of us are alone. We think we're alone in this journey. So that's one. Regarding small business essentials, Seth, as you know, I've started four small companies. And I think what's always there for me is that it is hard work. Two, it's highly rewarding. And three, oftentimes, and I've learned this from you in doing this workshop, we get so much into the weeds and tactics that we forget the high-level thought that goes behind why are we doing it. So inside this workshop, people, I think, are going to open their eyes to things that, A, they didn't know, or things they knew but didn't know why they were doing it. That's why I'm excited about it. Fantastic. How do we find out more? Where do we go? Yeah, akimbo.com slash small business essential. Thanks, Ramon. We'll see you there. Thanks, Seth. Sign up anytime until October 28th, 2020 at akimbo.com slash essentials. I'm hoping that if you're able to vote, you will vote. It matters a great deal. Speak up, go to the polls. But let's talk about my new book. In fact, let's just talk about books in general. I want to help us understand why books matter as a cultural touchstone more than 500 years later. Since the book became one of the first mass forms of culture, it has been followed by magazines and radio and television and newsletters and YouTube and social media and podcasts, and I could go on for a long time. And yet, books persist. Let's go through a list of some of the reasons why. One of them is that they transcend time. There's a new Dune movie coming out, and as a result of the movie coming out, Hundreds of thousands of people are going to reread Frank Herbert's original book. Almost nobody is going to rewatch the movie that featured Sting. Try looking into that place where you dare not look. You'll find me there staring back at you. You mustn't speak! I remember your Gom Jabbar. Now you'll remember mine. I can kill with a word. Why? Because there's something timeless about a book. You can pick up The Odyssey more than a thousand years after it was written, and it is in and of itself. You definitely need some cultural context to explain when it was written, but the technology itself holds up. The words are still the words. Number two. Books transcend space. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote The Gulag Archipelago. He wrote it 10,000 miles from where I'm sitting right now. It changed his world and our world as well. That it turns out that a book can be written just about anywhere, and it can be read 
just about anywhere. Number three, books are focused. A best-selling book, to a rounding error, sells to 0% of the mass audience. For a book to sell a million copies in the United States is considered a very significant home run. A million copies means that one out of 300 people bought it, which means fewer than half a percent, which means zero. That the goal of a book is not to sell to everyone. It's to sell to someone. Number four is leverage. While it may sell to no one, the ones it does sell to talk about it. It influences how they teach, how they live, how they act, and it does it over a longer period of time than almost any other form of media. And so we have a breakthrough like Hamilton on Broadway, which was also seen by approximately 0% of the population. And it too has a longer term impact on its industry and on the people who interacted with it. But for every Hamilton, there's a thousand books that have an impact like that. One of the reasons that books have this sort of impact is that they are curated. Until recently, you couldn't get a book into the hands of a bunch of people unless an editor and a publisher gave you the boost to do so. This is really important because curation artificially limited the supply of books. Because the supply of books was lower than the demand, they were scarce, which meant that yes, you could in fact read all of the important cookbooks or all of the important business books. You could have wide domain knowledge because somebody, a few somebodies, were limiting the supply, which goes hand in hand with books were carefully hand sold. If you want to understand what actually killed the book industry in the long run and what killed the bookstores, it was Walden Books. Walden Books, before Barnes & Noble, before Amazon, Walden Books was a chain of bookstores in malls. And the thing about it, two things about it. One, each individual Walden was run by someone who didn't care very much about books. They weren't rewarded for caring about books because their job was to follow the planogram that came from Central Command, which is the second half of it. There was one person or a small team of people in their central office in Massachusetts that was picking what would be on the shelf. They weren't picking what would be on the shelf because it was a book they cared about, that they liked, that they wanted to contribute to the culture. They did it because they had shareholders and their job was to maximize revenue. Perhaps for the first time throughout an entire nation, maximizing revenue became the point of many of the activities in the book business. It became a business. Barnes & Noble multiplied this dramatically. Barnes & Noble didn't care about what they sold. They just wanted to sell something. And then Amazon comes along. And the thing about Amazon is they are organized from the top down, from the bottom up, to sell everything. But they don't know how to sell anything. More than 20 years ago, when I first met Jeff Bezos, I talked to him about the fact that Amazon was doing the actual hard part of book publishing. They were organizing and understanding the readers. 
Book publishers have never done that. That's why you don't know the 800 number for Random House. In fact, it's not even in the book. Random House does not want to hear from readers. Amazon, on the other hand, knew everything about readers. Not only that, they had access to their shelf space. And so I pitched Jeff on having a book publishing division because printing isn't hard. Selecting the next book is an art, but you can hire for that. The really hard part was understanding readers and what they want, earning permission to talk to them about what they might want to read next, differentiating people, treating different people differently. Well, year after year, there'd be a back and forth about was Amazon ready to be a book publisher. When they were finally ready, I started an imprint called The Domino Project. We did 10 bestsellers in a row. I'm really proud of those books. But Amazon had a contractual obligation with us, and their obligation was to promote those 10 books. And they didn't. They said, we don't want to. They walked away from that. And so we ended the partnership. I had to promote the books. The authors and I had to work together to make them best sellers. Amazon could have done it with one click, but they're not organized to do that. They don't want to hand sell things. They don't want to give their merchants the power that merchants want. Instead, it's just a giant engine that turns and turns. Okay, but that part of the rant isn't as important as the part that says, we now have this medium, 500 years old, that transcends time and space, that's focused, that gives leverage in the culture, that's curated and is mostly hand-sold. That hand-selling has now been replaced by peer-to-peer hand-selling. So let's compare the impact of a book to something, say, like a YouTube video. A hit YouTube video is seen by more than a thousand times as many people as read a hit book, a thousand to one. There are at least a hundred YouTube videos that reach hundreds of millions of viewers for every book that sells a million or two million copies. Clearly, a video gives you broad reach. Or a podcast. A podcast has no curation. A podcast is way more timely than a book. But a podcast, like a YouTube video, doesn't really persist over time. Almost nobody is listening to podcasts that are five years old. Almost nobody watched the Gangnam Style YouTube video last week. On the other hand, there are books that sell better now than when they were published 15 or 20 years ago. And then here comes the Kindle. The Kindle, non-curated, anyone can publish for it, transcends space and maybe time. However, it pushes the old titles down and you only see the book you're currently reading. On top of that, there is no shelf. You can't look across the room and see a Kindle book that you remember fondly or one that you haven't finished and decide to pick it up and read it again. No, the book and its form factor persist. And so, books are in danger. They're in danger because curation and hand-selling are fading. They're in danger because in a world that's ever more commercial, ever more focused on the bottom line, most books can't possibly turn a profit. And as the long tail gets longer, the average sales per book have to go down. Amazon stopped separating out numbers for how many books they sold, but the last numbers I see, five or six years old, are $6 billion worth. So figure that number has tripled. Let's call it 20 
billion. That sounds like a lot of books, but they sell more than a million. So do the math. That means on average, they sell $20,000 worth of a book. $20,000 at $10 a copy, that's only 2,000 copies. The biggest bookseller in the world, I'm guessing, sells on the order of 2,000 copies of any given book title. So sure, there's a short head, there are hits, there are the bestsellers. But there are so many bestsellers, none of them are selling a million or two million copies. So why am I crazy enough to launch the practice? Well, you can read the details at sess.blog slash the practice. But writing a book is an act of hubris. It's saying, I want something that will transcend space. Yeah, but I could do that with a blog post. And transcend time. I'm hoping that people will read it 10 or 20 years from now, the way they're reading Lynchpin and Permission Marketing to this day. And so why make a book? The book gives us a handy magical container and we can hand it to someone else and say, let's read this together. We can form a group. We can establish a standard among our peers. We're going to together try to understand each other and this work. It can be a guidepost for how tomorrow could be a little bit different from today. The Practice is a book about shipping creative work, but mostly it's a book about changing the culture. And all of us are obsessed with the culture for good reason. The culture feels fraught. There's way too much injustice and separation. There's way too much dislocation and unfairness. We need more optimism and possibility. We need to figure out how to weave together communities that help us go forward. So definitely one thing we need to do is vote. And if I only could pick one thing, I would have you vote. But I get to pick two things. So I'm hoping that you will vote if you're allowed. And number two, check out this work and talk about it. Because what changes culture is each of us, what we expect and how we expect things to go. So it's true. There's no such thing as writer's block. It's true. Each one of us has a voice and a keyboard and leverage. It's true that you might feel like an imposter, but leadership is an act of going somewhere we haven't gone before. All of it rolls together to help us realize that we could adopt a practice, one that relentlessly turns a wheel forward to make things better by making better things. It's a privilege to make this podcast. It's a privilege to be able to talk about my book. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with two fascinating and juicy questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. I wrote a new book. It was originally called Trust Yourself, but my editor persuaded me correctly to change the title to The Practice. If you'd like to see a free excerpt and a summary, visit trustyourself.com. Got to do something with that domain. Check it out. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. Thank you for chiming in with your questions about this or any other episode or anything else that's on your mind. If you've got a question, visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, 
and click the appropriate button. Hi Seth, uh, I hope this voice message finds you well amidst this pandemic. Um, I've been thinking a lot about how to specialize in my career and I thought about coaching and teaching about creativity. Um, now, unfortunately, I am near the start of my career and haven't produced anything particularly creative. I have no books published. I haven't produced any blockbuster movies. And I haven't written a play. So my question is, do you think someone can teach a subject without having achieved in that field first? Does someone have to write a bestseller before they can teach about writing? Uh, love to hear your thoughts and thanks for all the work you do. You knew that I would love this question, and I do, because it touches on pedagogy. Pedagogy is the craft of teaching, understanding how to put something in front of someone who wants to learn it, so they are likely to learn it. And there is no evidence, none, that being really good at a skill, at a thing, at cooking or cross-country skiing, makes you likely to be good at pedagogy. Along the way, we got confused. We tend to believe that there's some sort of hidden wisdom. The people who are really good at something, the Michael Jordan of whatever their craft is, have a secret. And if we could just get them to tell us the secret, then we'd be fine. And this is the conceit behind Masterclass, which is basically entertainment masquerading as education. The people who teach a Masterclass don't know more than people who know how to teach. In fact, they know less. They have simply figured out how to succeed. But it's not a secret. It is a combination of persistence and luck and hard-earned skill. Teaching, pedagogy, figuring out how to structure lessons, to learn how to see people the way they need to be seen to help them, that's totally different. The kind of therapy that someone needs to become creative has nothing to do with you being creative at all. It has to do with helping them find their footing and develop a practice. So no, I don't think that you should let the fact that you haven't written a best-selling book about creativity or even written a creative opera on your own keep you from doing the generous, difficult, and important work of helping other people get there. The hard part is breaking the false connection between what people think a successful teacher has, which is bestsellers, and what they need a successful teacher to have which is students who have created bestsellers. That is what we seek. Pedagogy is a skill. It is a craft. We can learn it, but most people who are busy succeeding at other things don't have the time or inclination to learn how to do so. Thanks for this one. Hi, Seth. This is Barack from Israel, now in San Diego, California. My question refers to one of the points you mentioned in the podcast, Life at Catalyst 2010. My question is about failing. While failing in cupcake baking is not fatal, when a doctor fails in a surgery, it definitely is. Or if a BMW engineer will try a design that might fail, it can cost him the driver's life. Or another example, if a school counselor will try to help a kid with an approach that might not work, if this approach doesn't work, it can end with unfortunate results. The sad outcome is that these possible fatal results leads to a culture, especially in these jobs, of deniability, fear of liability, and eventually cripples growth and the thrive for being better. Can you please explain how to allow failing in these kinds of jobs without having 
the risk of fatal results. Thank you for being consistent and teach us your ideas, Seth. There's all sorts of layers here, and they have to do with what kind of harm are we doing when we do our work. So Elon Musk has famously pointed out that self-driving cars are going to kill people on their way to working, but not developing self-driving cars is going to kill even more people, far more people. Because once we have good self-driving cars, they're not going to run over pedestrians the way people do today. So the first question is getting deep into what's the trade-off? What is the trade-off of making something that in the short run, as it transitions, might not be as safe as the thing it replaces, but in the long run, leads to a lot of positive outcome? In my case, when I am talking about the work that most of us are doing, if we are honest with ourselves, even though it feels like a matter of life or death, it hardly is. It is hardly a matter of life or death about whether your book sells another copy or whether that kid in the third row of the kindergarten class learns something today or not. But leaping, diving in, committing is fraught. And so we act like it's a matter of life or death. I'm trying to undermine that thinking because the minute we realize we're doing a generous act is the moment we can lean in to the contribution we seek to make. There's a bigger point to your question, which is how we do the public policy issues and decisions about is it okay for an engineer to even work on a car at all, or should we just stop the development of everything unless it's a net positive? I'm going to leave that one for a future rant. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.